We're in John chapter 11, and we've spent the last few weeks talking about the sickness of Lazarus and the death of Lazarus and the raising of Lazarus. And as I mentioned in our opening prayer, the power of Christ, the compassion of Christ, we see Jesus weeping. In this whole gospel, of course, we see the humanity and the deity of Christ from the opening words, but we also see it throughout, and we see it so clearly in John chapter 11, Jesus with his power raising Lazarus from the dead, even after a body that had begun decaying in the tomb, and yet also his weeping at the tomb as he sees the effects of sin, the grief that it caused his friends. But there's a reaction, as so often we see in the Gospel of John, to what Jesus has done, and that's our focus today. We'll nearly finish John 11 today. We'll finish it for now. For a little while, we'll go back to Luke and then back to John fairly soon as we're getting so close to the, uh, the, the trial and the crucifixion of Christ. But our passage today is a chapter 11, verses 45 to 54. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to a country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Well, we see initially two reactions to the raising of Lazarus, verses 45 and 46. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him, But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. John here mentions many of the Jews who came to Mary. I think that's hearkening back to verse 31, when Martha meets Jesus outside the village, and it says the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her saw that that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So Mary leaves the house quickly, goes to the tomb, Some Jews follow her there. Those are the ones who, because they followed Mary, saw the miracle. If they had stayed at the home, they would not have witnessed this miracle. But because they went with Mary to the tomb, out of compassion for her, they saw this mighty miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ. So many of the Jews who came to Mary, they saw what he had done, they saw the miracle, they believed in him. Their compassion for Mary led them to a situation where they were able to see Jesus' power and believe. We've said many times in the Gospel of John, John shows who Christ is in many ways, but 
particularly by virtue of seven signs, seven miracles that he does. But also, John goes to some lengths to show us what the reactions were. So Christ does a miracle, but there are also reactions. And often the the reaction is belief. John 2.23, after he had uh, changed the water into wine, and then it says, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But it says that uh, next verses, Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew it was in man. So while many believed in his name, you might put that in, in air quotes nowadays, we had such things. There are people who truly believed in Christ. There are also those who believed in quotes in Christ. They stuck around as long as it was uh, exciting, as long as it benefited them. But when it came to Jesus making difficult demands of them, they fell away. Uh, John 4.53, after Jesus had uh, raised uh, a ruler's young boy from a distance, the father knew that it was in that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed and his whole household. So he sees the miracle of Christ, and he believes, and his household believes as well. John 7.31, many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? So again, Jesus does miracles, and the people believe, many of them believe. But let's look at John 8. There's always uh, multiple reactions to the work of Christ. John 8, verse 30. It says, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. We don't have time to go into what those things are, but they hear him now. They've seen his power and believe. Now they hear him and believe. And then Jesus says, verse 31, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And again, this term believe in verses 30 and 31 is maybe a shallower level of faith in Christ. These aren't those who have wholeheartedly left all and followed Christ, truly believed from the heart. But we'll see by the end of the chapter, these people who had believed in him are ready, verse 59, to pick up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the the temple. So when Jesus is doing miracles or saying wonderful things, that's great. We love Jesus. We believe in Jesus. But then he makes demands of them, saying, you have to continue in my word. He talks about the fact that he, verse 58, before Abraham was born, I am. He makes these claims about himself, about who he is and his person, and they don't want to believe that, and so they want to kill Jesus. So those who, there are some who believe him and follow him like the disciples. There are some who believe him for a time and fall away just out of uh, lack of interest. There are those who fall away with great hostility and want to kill him. John 10, verse 19, says, A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, These are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? He's healed the man who was born blind in the previous chapter. So again, this division. Some are agitated, angry at Jesus, want to shut him up or kill him. Others are saying, This makes... No sense to do that. If he was a demon-possessed man, he couldn't actually open the eyes of the blind. 
Another interesting reaction, set of reactions we see after Jesus feeds the 5,000 in John 6. Remember the first reaction after he fed the 5,000? Said in verse 15, I'll read this, John 6, 15. It says that Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, they were really enthusiastic about Jesus. Whoa, this, this man can feed us. Now, how often have people in history been uh, swayed by a man who says, I have you know, bread and circuses. You know, I can feed you, I can entertain you, follow me, and they will do it. And Jesus did not want to be king, at least not in the way they want him to, to be king. So you think, well, these people are really full force behind Jesus, want him to be king. And yet, not too long after that, just the next day, they say, what do you, verse 30, what do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Now, that was yesterday, Jesus, when you fed us. Why don't you feed us today and the next day and the next day? And maybe then we'll believe you. One great miracle by the sea, feeding 5,000, is not enough. You have to keep doing it. So we see this sort of tenuous faith that is only faithful as long as Jesus gives them what they want. Uh, Thinking back to... Right, they just wanted their bellies filled. And, and Jesus, later in John 6, makes demands. He says, I'm the living bread. I'm the, I'm the bread. You need to, to eat of me. You need to, to follow me. And they say, verse 60, in fact, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? He even says they're his disciples, verse 60. And the disciples are grumbling, verse 61. Not, not the apostles, not the twelve, but these sort of disciples around him. Again, we can use air quotes, the disciples. Because then it says... Verse 66, as a result of this, and again, we don't have time to go through John 6 again. As a result of this discussion, John 6, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So as long as Jesus did what they wanted, they, they kept hit their bellies full, then they'll follow Jesus. But as soon as he makes demands of them, he says, you must say, leave all and follow me, or you must uh, understand that I am God of very God. I was there before Abraham existed. I am the I am. He makes statements like that. They either want to just walk away or they want to kill him. So that that's the, the the different kinds of reactions we see. When Jesus does a miracle, it's not as though everybody is just awed and this is amazing, Jesus. We want to follow you. We, we can see you're the Son of God. We believe in you. Tell us what you want us to do. Very often the action the reaction is hostility. That's right. Yes. Yeah, for the most part, it's because of what he can do physically or maybe politically. They don't like the Romans, and so they figure Jesus is, can be our king now. He's a Jewish king, and he'll be like the great kings of the past, maybe like he's the son of David, right? So when he comes in not too much later, when he enters Jerusalem uh, on the donkey, and they acclaim him, 
Hosanna to the son of David. They think he's going to come and set up the the rule of of David. He's going to fulfill all the prophecies, and he's going to kick out the Romans, and he's going to make a a, a Jewish state again uh, that will be independent of the, the Romans. That's what they wanted, some of them anyway. They wanted that kind of political or that that sort of material leader, the king, and they would worship that. They would follow that. But once it comes to the, the spiritual demands he makes of them, they say, no, we're not interested in that. So they have a, they have a, a faith of a, of a sort, but it's a shallow faith. It's like the, the parable of the soils. The plants grow up, and they may grow up really fast. They have this enthusiasm. They have, but then sun comes up, or weeds come and choke it out, and they, they die. They don't have that grounded faith in Christ that will last through persecution, through the, the years of the struggles, and even the death of Christ. In John 11, we have many who believe in him, but then verse 46 of John 11 says, but some of them went to the Pharisees. And again, it's a common theme in John, division over Jesus. We saw that a bit earlier in John 10. John 7 has a similar reaction. John 7, verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. So they're dividing over Jesus' works and his words. He's the prophet. Or some were saying, this is a Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. So some are curious about who he really is. Some have a more favorable opinion of him. Others want to seize him, but no one laid hands on him just yet. Now, back to John 11. It doesn't say whether these people who went to the Pharisees out of hostility to Jesus, or they went there because they just thought the Pharisees ought to know as kind of the, the leaders in Israel. My guess is that because they are not part of that group who believed in Jesus, they, they may have had at least not positive views of Christ, but they may well have been those who were more hostile to Jesus because they knew the Pharisees didn't like Christ. They knew the Pharisees had said, if anybody believes in Jesus as the Messiah, they were to be put out of the synagogue. So the people, I think, who went to tell the Pharisees knew the Pharisees didn't like Jesus already. So they were probably more on the Pharisee side than not. Well, let's look at verse 47. And I said before that there were two reactions to the raising of Lazarus, but really there are three. But these ones were not there at the raising. Verse 47, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That mentions here the chief priests. These were former high priests or from prominent priestly families. They kind of, like often in, say, the United States or even more in other countries throughout history, you get these people who have been in positions of power, and their parents were, and their parents were, or their, their, their fathers in most cases, and they kind of just have these powerful families that rule in these nations. And we often will see hostility from Jewish leaders in the Gospel of John, and we won't look at all of these uh, for the sake of time, but uh, let me just uh, find a, a couple here. The obvious ones are towards the end of his ministry. I have a list of about six here, but I'll, I'll forbear from some of them. But look at John 7. We saw some of these earlier. 
The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the, the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. There we have the chief priests and the Pharisees again, sending their guards to seize Jesus. And then verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees. They said to him, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Uh, it mentions verse 48, the rulers and the Pharisees. But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. And then it mentions Nicodemus. We saw him in John 3. He seems to be sympathetic still to Jesus. Our law does not judge a man, verse 51, unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, that is, the rulers and the Pharisees, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Uh, Chapter 8, we see verse 13, the Pharisees say to Jesus, you are testifying about yourself, your testimony is not true. John 9, we see the hostility from the Pharisees against, remember the man who was born blind? Jesus heals him, and then there's this interaction between him and the Pharisees. The Pharisees put him out of the synagogue. Of course, we have uh, John 11:57. We'll get there uh, later. Verse 57, John 11. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. And then verse 10 of John 12. The chief priests, there's that term again, planned to put Lazarus to death also. And then more in John 18 when, and 19 when the, this, this climax comes and they end up putting him to death. So we see the Jewish leaders, the chief priests, Pharisees, are the ones who are, are often resisting the words and works of Jesus and have several times threatened him with arrest and death already in the Gospel of John. It says here that they convened a council, and this is this word council is from a Greek word, Sanhedrin, and you might have heard the term Sanhedrin. It simply means a council, and this was a council of chief priests and other influential religious leaders in Jerusalem. Now, this word Sanhedrin can refer to a small court like we have municipal courts, we have county courts, we have state, and we have federal courts sort of up the, the chain here. In a similar way, you could have a local council in Judea or Galilee someplace, but you would have other other councils, and then this council here in Jerusalem is the council. Like, we have many courts, but we have a supreme court. And it's generally thought to consist of 71 members. So you'd have 70 members plus the high priest, making 71. And it was interesting, because I was reading this morning, happened to be reading in Numbers 11, and the basis of this 70-member council is said by tradition to be related to Numbers 11, where the people are complaining against Moses and the Lord, and Moses is saying, Lord, I can't take this anymore. Verse 16, Numbers 11, The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And so, God gives Moses 70 men to assist him in Numbers 11. Now, it's not as though this 70-member group lasted from Numbers, the time of Moses, all the way to the time of Christ. In fact, there are those who think that the, the seven, number 70 uh, is even uncertain. We don't know a lot about the, the, the Sanhedrin, capital S, you might say, the, the supreme Sanhedrin. 
But the tradition would link that to the time of Moses. In any case, the, the council here is mostly Sadducees. We'll talk about them in a moment. And some Pharisees as well. So we have the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they have this council. And that describes the, the bulk of those who are in this Sanhedrin. Now, just to remind you about the Sadducees versus the Pharisees, it's been a while since we've seen the Sadducees. These tended to be aristocratic, wealthy, uh, and the most influential priests, like Caiaphas, were Sadducees. And it was a fairly small elite group and centered mostly in Jerusalem. The Sadducees only accepted the Pentateuch, which is the five books of Moses, as authoritative, so the rest of the scriptures they didn't think were important to follow. They denied the requirements of the oral law. They leaned towards Hellenism, which sort of Greekification. That is, they were more into the Greek culture, the Greek language. They were more connected to the Romans. They were more politically savvy than, say, the Pharisees were. They were anti-supernaturalists. That is, they didn't believe in angels or demons or life after death. They believed that God rewards you in this life. When, and so they're very powerful in this time, but their influence ended at the destruction of the Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. So 40-some years after Jesus died, the Sadducees basically went away as a power because their power was centered in the temple, and once the temple was gone, their power was gone as well. The Sadducees opposed Jesus, of course, but they tended to oppose him because he threatened their power. They were concerned with political power, and so any threat to that power they would want to eliminate. Now, the Pharisees accepted all the Old Testament, so they believed that all what we call the Old Testament was God's word, not just the five books of Moses. And the Pharisees developed their own oral law traditions. We remember that, the oral law. Sadducees said, no, oral law isn't important. The Pharisees had their oral law. They did believe in angels and demons. They believed in life and rewards and punishment after death. So in some ways, the Pharisees were were more conservative, had a lot more overlap with the views of Christians, even though the Pharisees were more hostile in terms of what they believed in in the the sphere of of religious uh, ideas or truths. It was more in line with what what the Christians would later teach, what Jesus taught. It's interesting that, and I don't know if it, we can make, take much significance out of this, but we see several Pharisees in the Gospels in the book of Acts come to faith in Christ. Uh, we're not sure how much Nicodemus really believed in Christ or, or Joseph Arimathea, but they were, in some sense, followers of Christ. Who was the most famous Pharisee who followed Jesus? Right, the Apostle Paul. There was, but there was no indication, no example of any Sadducee coming to faith in Christ. So while there are several Pharisees who believed in Christ, the Sadducees never seemed to. And the Pharisees, well, remember the Sadducees opposed Jesus primarily because he threatened their power and their influence with the Romans. The Pharisees, you might say, would oppose Jesus because he threatened their understanding and practice of the law. We see When Jesus confronts the Pharisees, he's talking about how they understand the law. So we see these Sadducees and Pharisees are very different in their outlooks, both political and spiritual, and yet they're united in what, in this case? What unites them? Yeah, their hatred for Jesus. Yeah, their opposition to Jesus. Maybe different motivations, different reasons, but they they both don't like Jesus in the main, and they want to see him silenced. Now, we'll, we'll see this council, the Sanhedrin, later during the trial of Jesus, 
And we also see them in Acts. There's trials involving Peter and John in Acts 4 and 5, the trial of Stephen in Acts 6 and 7, and later Paul, we'll see in the, later in the book of Acts, he's before the Sanhedrin and speaks to them. So this council is a, an important force in and around Jerusalem. So they convene this council and they ask a question. What are we doing or what are we going to do? That was the item on the agenda. What are we doing for this man is performing many signs? They didn't deny the signs, by the way, but they didn't want to lose their power. And so they had to figure a way to eliminate this man who was performing these signs. If we let him go on like this, they continue, verse 48, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Any man who was hailed as the Messiah could be seen as a direct threat to the Romans, right? The Romans don't want an anointed one. They don't want a king trying to set himself up in Jerusalem as the, the Jewish king. And the Romans weren't known for their kindness to those who tried to usurp their power, right? Many stories of people rising up and the Romans crushed them as hard as they can. In fact, there were other men who claimed to be Messiah, and they caused lots of trouble in this period in Jewish history. And this could be especially dangerous as Passover approached. You can imagine that the Roman government might get a little nervous several times a year when all the Jews from the area of Judea and Galilee and many from around the world would come in Jerusalem all at once. And what's the opportunity for mischief or for disorder? And so they want to make sure that the, the Roman soldiers were there en masse to deal with any possible challenges to Romans to Rome's power. And so as Passover approaches, the Romans are, are really going to look more closely at who's causing trouble. And if Jesus seems to be causing trouble in the Romans' mind, well, they're going to require that from the, the, the council, the Sanhedrin as well. The Romans did allow Jews some freedom. They weren't so totalitarian as we might think sometimes, but that meant that the Jews couldn't be too much of a nuisance. They kind of let them alone as long as they didn't cause too much trouble. But if they caused trouble, uh, then the Romans would clamp down on that. And the Jewish leaders here in John 11 didn't want to lose that that bit of independence that they had, that, that bit of power they had. In fact, we'll see later on in Matthew 27, Pilate knew that because of envy, the council had handed Jesus over. They were envious of Jesus and his influence over the people. Now, the council here mentions that the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And there are different views of what our place means, but most commentators think this place is referring to the temple, that the Romans would come and take away the temple and the nation. Or it might be their place as those who are prominent in Jewish life, that they would unseat the Sanhedrin and take direct control. In any case, the Sanhedrin, the council, did not want to lose this advantage, this place. So they've asked the question, what are we going to do? What are we doing? Well, we have Caiaphas now. Caiaphas makes an appearance here in verses 49 and 50, and he gives a prophecy. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and the whole nation not perish. Now, Caiaphas, as the high priest, would have been the one who's overseeing this meeting, the chairman of this meeting, you might say. He was the high priest from 18 to 
36, so just before the ministry of Jesus till a few years after, until he was removed by Rome. And Caiaphas was not selected because he was a direct heir of Aaron through history as a lifetime appointment. You can't trace the high priest from Aaron down to his sons, 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 all the way to Caiaphas. Again, a political appointment. And it was not a lifetime appointment as Aaron was. Remember that the high priest would, would be high priest until they died. But at this point, Rome would come and put one man in, take him out, depending on how he uh, pleased them or appeased them or paid them. Caiaphas was not a godly man. The, the, the Romans didn't care who was the most godly man. They wanted to put somebody in there that they knew that they could, could, could control or they could trust not to cause any trouble. Now this man Caiaphas is mentioned twice in Matthew. We won't go into that. He's mentioned once in Luke and five times in John, more than any other gospel. And that may not be surprising because John possibly knew the high priest. Look at John 18. This is not a certain thing, but it's interesting. John 18.15, it says, Simon Peter was following Jesus. This is as Jesus has been arrested and he's going to go to, to trial. Simon Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple. Now, we don't know for sure that this was John, but we suspect it might be John. Now, that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. So John or this disciple, whoever he was, had an inside track to sort of find out what was going on in the high priest's home, and Peter went with him. So that may be why, if this is John in John 18, who's with Simon Peter, that might explain why John himself, who knew the high priest, who knew Caiaphas, would be interested in focusing on him here. Caiaphas is also mentioned in the book of Acts. If you look at Acts chapter 4, we see a similar situation to what's happening in John 11. Acts 4 verse 6. We have Annas, the high priest. Actually, let's go to verse 5. Acts 4 verse 5. The next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Anna, the high priest, was there. And Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly descent. Now, it mentions Annas, the high priest, but he was not the high priest at this point. He had been high priest before, but he was still alive. Just like, like you might talk about uh, President Trump, President Obama. They're not president now, but they were president, so we still call them president sometimes. So Caiaphas was still high priest in Acts 4, but Annas had been high priest, so they call him high priest. And so they bring the disciples in, and they, they talk to them. Look at verse 16. Uh, the, actually, the, Verse 15, the council is talking to themselves and they say, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. So Peter had raised a man up who had been, who was, who was lame in the temple and he gets to preach. So we have a miracle. We have a, a, a Great reaction to that. People believe in Christ, and the council says we have to do something about this. In Acts 14 or 4, 16, they say, What shall we do with these men? And their answer here in Acts 4 is to tell them to stop talking about Christ. And we won't look at it now, but there's a similar incident in Acts 5, where Caiaphas put the apostles in prison 
but they were released by an angel. And again, they were told by the high priest to, con- to not continue teaching about Jesus. Well, back to Caiaphas in John 11. Caiaphas, verse 49, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. He's saying, you fools, you morons, in a, in a sense. It's pretty shocking rudeness, isn't it? Can you imagine if the chief justice and the, and the Supreme Court were having, having a meeting and he looked at the other eight justices and said, you fools, you morons, you don't know anything. Or if the Speaker of the House or the Leader of the Senate looked at the whole assembled uh, group of representatives and said, you don't know anything, you're all fools. That's the kind of man Caiaphas was. He's not above insulting the elite of the elite in their society. But while the rest of them were sitting around wondering what to do, they're asking themselves, what shall we do? Caiaphas knows what to do. He has a solution. If we kill Jesus, the problem is solved. He says, it's expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now notice here, it's expedient for you. It's it's the, the council that he's concerned about, not concerned about the nation, not concerned about righteousness or justice. He's concerned about himself and his cohort here who have the political power in Judea. But it's interesting that while he says that one man should die so the nation not perish, it turned out they did lose the temple, the nation, and the Sanhedrin itself not too many years later. Forty years after he spoke these words, the temple was in ruins. The Sanhedrin was gone. The temple was gone. The nation was scattered around and many, many killed. After several years of rebellion, the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem finally in A.D. 70. In fact, Jesus knew that this was going to happen, that while for the moment they thought this would save their skins, would save their nations to get rid of Jesus, in a short time they would all be for nothing. Jesus, in Luke 19, 41-44, the other instance we see of Jesus weeping in the Gospels, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So the visitation was a time when Christ came because he did not believe in Christ, didn't follow Christ, they rejected Christ. That's why this destruction came some 40 years later. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 2, Do you not see all these things? They're looking at the temple and and all its surrounding buildings. Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. So, in their efforts to hold the nation together, to hold the temple together, to hold their power together, they lost it all because they rejected Christ. But Caiaphas, in his wickedness, his desire to kill Jesus for the sake of the nation. John sees something deeper in the words of the high priest. Verse 51, Now he, that is Caiaphas, did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Now Caiaphas, it says, was high priest that year. It was not a year-long appointment, but it may be, John is saying here, that 
it's the consequential year when Christ died, this important year, Caiaphas was high priest. And he prophesied. He said more than he understood. And Caiaphas said what he wanted to. It wasn't like he was a, a robot and God was speaking through him. But he said his words, but God said what he wanted to through this man Caiaphas, this wicked man Caiaphas. Just as when Pilate put a sign on the cross that Jesus was king of the Jews, did Pilate believe Jesus was king of the Jews? No. Was Jesus king of the Jews? He was. So Pilate, by putting that sign above Jesus on the cross, was speaking the truth from God and didn't even intend it. Just as Jesus also died as a result of the actions of the Sanhedrin, but who else did Jesus die as a result of? The will of who? The will of God. Did the Sanhedrin want Jesus dead? Did, did God the Father want Jesus to die on the cross? They both had wills. They both wanted to do something, but the, the will of the Sanhedrin was, was evil. God's will, of course, was good. And Tom will get to this at some point in Genesis 50, depending how many how many parts he has. Genesis 50, verse 20, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So the brothers of Joseph meant evil against Joseph. God meant it for good. They both had their wills, but God's will used man's will, superseded man's will, to do what he wanted to accomplish. Jesus, John is saying here, didn't die so the nation could be saved from the wrath of the Romans. He died so the nation could be saved from the wrath of God. And not just the Jewish nation, but also, it says, in order, verse 52, that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. And this is a beautiful depiction of the the Jews themselves scattered around the earth, but also of the Gentiles who would hear and believe in Christ. Jesus would die to save the nation, but he would save many others besides. We've already seen this in the Gospel of John. John one twenty nine. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He would die for the world. John 10.16, Jesus has said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So there are sheep who are scattered, they're the Jewish ones Jesus has, has already been speaking to, but there are other sheep, the Gentiles, that Jesus would speak and they would hear his voice and follow him. And then Revelation 7, verse 9, John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hand. So every nation, all tribes, peoples, and tongues would come and surround the Lamb and believe in him. Now Caiaphas here, again, as a wicked man, spoke clearly of the substitutionary atonement or vicarious atonement of Christ on the cross. He died in our place. He died on our behalf. As 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself, that is Christ, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. We saw some of these verses last week in Isaiah 53, but we can look at them again real briefly here. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. 
Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Just think of the substitutionary language here. He does this on behalf of others. Our griefs he bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. We were due the stroke for our transgression, but he was cut off for our sake. Verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Guilt offering was to show the guilt of sin. Animal would die on behalf of the people who committed the sin. But this one that is talked about in Isaiah 53 is the one who would be himself the guilt offering, would die on behalf of others. We will see his offspring. He will, or he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured himself uh, out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So again, that Christ did this all for our sakes, in our place. When he was on the cross, he was there so we did not have to be. So we did not have to die forever. He died for a short time on that cross and was in the grave for three days, was raised again. We did that all for our sakes, that we would not have to do it for ourselves. And Caiaphas didn't understand that, but he said that because God prophesied through him more than he knew. Well, the council then plots, verse 53, from that day on, they planned together to kill him. They'd had enough of Jesus. they had threatened him before. They tried to arrest him before. But the resurrection of Lazarus and the response to it was the last straw. They agreed with the high priest. They had to silence Jesus once and for all. And so Jesus' response is, verse 54, he withdraws. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to, a country, to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now, Ephraim, we don't know exactly where this is. It could be a place that's called Ephron in Second Chronicles. It's about 12 miles northeast of Jerusalem, and it's in the territory of Ephraim near the wilderness. And so that comports with what is here. He went to the, near the wilderness to Ephraim. It's also close to Samaria, and we'll see Jesus next in Luke 17 in the area of Samaria. So that's probably where Ephraim is, up to the north a little ways. Twelve miles, not too far, but not too close. There are other cases where Jesus withdrew. We don't have time to look at them now, but in John 7 and John 10, there were times when the, the hostility grew so much he withdrew. But he didn't go there out of fear but because his time had not yet come. John 7.30 says they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8.20, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So Jesus would stay out of harm's way because it was not his time yet, but when the time came, he went where the Father wanted him to be. 
We'll see just in a few weeks, John 12, 1. Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Bethany was just very close to Jerusalem. When it's time, Jesus went to the place he needed to be. In John 13, 13 verse 1, it says, Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing his hour had come, that he would depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He was not unwilling to die. He was willing to die when the time came, but not before. He would follow the Father's plan no matter what. Let me just end with a a few closing thoughts. This passage shows so clearly the corruption of man's heart. These people had seen Jesus in his great power. They heard Jesus' great words, and yet they wanted to kill him. They'd seen all he had done, and they wanted to kill him. They wanted to shut him up forever. Shows how sinful man can be. Some people think that they would believe, I, I don't really believe in Jesus, but if he would do a great miracle right now, Jesus, I'll fall on my, my face and believe in you if you just heal my, my mother who's dying or, or maybe bargain with the Lord. If you will do this for me, I will follow Christ no matter what. If Jesus did a great miracle in their presence. But remember, we saw this not too long ago, Luke 16, verse 31. Abraham says to the rich man in Hades, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Were these men in John 11 here, were they persuaded when Jesus raised someone from the dead? No. In fact, a man named Lazarus, as it turns out. They didn't believe because their hearts were hardened. They didn't believe the law and the prophets. And the question for all of us is, what are you going to do about Jesus? That's the most consequential question you will ever answer. What are you going to do about Jesus? These people in the council says, what will we do? Well, we ask ourselves, what will we do? We see Jesus' power in the Gospels. We see his power in raising Lazarus from the dead. We see his words spoken like no man ever speaks. What will we do about Jesus? Now, I expect the fact that you're here today means you're not as hostile to Jesus as the the men were in John 11. But there may be some of you who feel indifferent, or maybe you can put it off. You can just wait for a while. Jesus doesn't really move you much one way or the other. But if Jesus has the power over life and death, if he is the resurrection and the life, if he has died on behalf of sinners, neutrality is not an option. You might say, in fact, in a sense, the hostility of the council here makes more sense than indifference. How can you see Jesus, who he is, who he claims to be, and have no feelings whatsoever to be neutral toward Jesus. I can see somebody being hostile to Jesus because he threatens their power or threatens their religion or threatens their lifestyle, but to just say, eh, Jesus, I could take him or leave him, shows that you haven't come to terms with who Jesus truly is. Hostility I can understand. Worship I understand. But indifference doesn't make any sense to me. So all of us must come to terms with this question. Who is Jesus? What does he require of us? What will we do with Jesus? And ask ourselves, have you believed in Christ? Have you followed him and trusted in his death to satisfy God's wrath? If not, I pray you'll do it this morning. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the power of Christ. We grieve to see the hostility of this council towards Jesus, how they could not follow him. We we might think, is so hard to understand, and yet we know ourselves how deep we can be in sin, how hostile we can be to your word, 
to your will for us. And we are only in this place worshiping Christ because you have changed our hearts. We can't change our hearts to follow Jesus. We can only trust you. And we do pray that you would help us to walk in a way that would honor him, that would reflect who he is. And for those here who might not know Christ, may they not just walk away indifferent to him, putting off the answer to the question, what shall we do with Jesus? But come to terms with who he is and believe him even now to repent of their sins, to give their life to Christ, to follow him with joy the rest of their days. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.